Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week we have reporter Jacob Solis and intern Shannon Miller talking about a vote that happened last week at the Las Vegas City Council that makes sleeping on the street a misdemeanor. Later on, we have an interview from our friends at KUNR, in which reporter Paul Boger sits down with Truckee Meadows Community College political science professor Fred Locken to talk about the upcoming 2020 election and the political and campaign trends that he has noted. At the end of the episode, Jacob Solis returns to chat with me about three new movies, Jojo Rabbit, The Lighthouse, and Parasite. All of them did well at festivals like Cannes, Sundance, and the Toronto International Film Festival, but don't worry, no spoilers here. Last week, the Las Vegas City Council approved a measure that would make sleeping or camping on downtown sidewalks a misdemeanor crime. City leaders say it's a necessary move to improve public safety and public health in a revitalized downtown. But critics say the ordinance has essentially criminalized homelessness in lieu of providing more resources for the homeless. Our Nevada Independent intern Shannon Miller has been following this story since the beginning, and she joins me now. Shannon, glad to have you here. Thanks for having me, Jacob. So this ordinance didn't come out of thin air. What prompted the city council to take a look at homelessness downtown in the first place? That's a really good question, and it's it's all very complicated and goes back so far. But um, the homelessness um, issue in southern Nevada, depending on who you ask, it, it's getting, I mean, there's less people sleeping on the streets compared to um, the 2018 point in time homelessness count. But chronic homelessness has increased, I believe, by 19%, according to reports that the, the continuum of care has put forward. So basically, with this ordinance, it was proposed by Mayor Carolyn Goodman, and it was of course, drafted by the city attorneys, basically to take action because, um, at least according to Mayor Goodman at the meeting last week, which was on Wednesday, she said that her words were they've been kicking this can down the road for 20 years and it's time to do something that will have real action in terms of cleaning up uh, the streets and making them safer for pedestrians, better for businesses. Um, So those are some of the factors going into what led to this ordinance. So you mentioned a meeting last week, last Wednesday. Let's talk about that meeting. Walk me through the day. How did things start? So it started, the meeting itself was scheduled for nine o'clock. Around eight o'clock, there were several groups. I would say the crowd to me looked to be about 60 people who were there to basically protest the ordinance. And meeting started nine o'clock. There was an hour and a half of public comment at the very beginning, which is just general comment. Um, And then they kind of did the proceedings and then the agenda item came up, at which point the city gave an hour and a half long presentation about how the ordinance came to be drafted and some of the factors that they've been considering um, when when they put proposed the ordinance. And then after that, there was another hour and a half of public comment, this time more on the pro side supporting the ordinance. And then after that, they voted. It was a five to two vote with two of the council members voting in opposition and five voting in support of the ordinance. And so it passed. And that five includes the mayor? The five does include the mayor, yes. Okay. And so I know that the the protests that started the day followed the city council into the chambers. Can you describe what the atmosphere was like at that meeting? Yes, it was very... Um, there was a lot going on. There were a lot of people, The pretty much the entire um, room was full, which I believe that room has a capacity of like 500 people. Um, so there was, on, especially on the 
opposition side, there were a lot of people. They walked in chanting. Some of the groups that were there, their leaders kind of had prepared statements and they went up and read during public comment. But it was definitely more lively than other city council meetings in the past. I want to tell you all, you can't hear me, I am not going to scream, and I appreciate, I appreciate all of you with your voices, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, we want to conduct, you can't hear me if you keep screaming. I could recess. I have a choice. I can ask you all to leave. Excuse me, let's try and have some manners here. Let's be courteous so we can hear each other and proceed. Excuse me. If you care and really care, you will sit down and observe the decorum of this body who is taking everything it in earnest and with dignity and i expect the same from each of you okay so let's drill down into the specifics of this ordinance here because it, it, it does more than just sort of make sleeping downtown um, illegal so what specifically does this ordinance do how is it going to be enforced and and what are we really looking at here that's right so Generally, and the way that the city has presented it is that it's called the homelessness ordinance, but the word homeless is nowhere in the ordinance. It's basically to make a mis- a misdemeanor crime if you are even loitering, the way the ordinance has been written. Um, so if you're loitering or sleeping or camping in a public right-of-way or within 500 feet of a food-receiving dock. And so the ordinance does get a little more specific about like, you know, um, even if you're using your own stool, it's still considered a, you would be in violation of the ordinance if you're within the areas that they will be enforcing it. Certain things like that, public seating is not an option for people who are considered loitering. Um, they would be um, violating the ordinance if they were to be using public seating. So that's something law enforcement could um, enforce. So how big is the enforcement area? You mentioned that it was kind of narrow. Yes, good question. Um, so it is in all master planned communities in the downtown area. And it's going, so that includes the medical district. It also includes, I believe, adjacent residential neighborhoods or residential neighborhoods in the city of Las Vegas limits. And it's going to include, I think this is technically part of the city of Las Vegas already, but I think it's important mentioning the historic west side is going to be included in this because I, they um, have been an area that has had a lot of perspective development lately. Mm. So a, a lot of the criticism around this law centers around the idea that it's making being homeless downtown illegal while at the same time not providing any additional resources for homelessness. I mean, what's the credibility of those claims? And beyond that, I mean, what alternatives were available to the city council in the first place here? Yes, that's a good question. And one that was raised on um, Wednesday last week, just the fact that um, the way this ordinance is written, um, they were able to kind of get around some other cities have had problems with it. They've tried to pass ordinances like this and it's been unlawful because if there's no shelters or anywhere available for these people to stay, where are they supposed to go? And the way that the city wrote the law, 
got around that by basically saying if there is availability at either the Courtyard Homelessness Resource Center, um, and that's in the Corridor of Hope on Four Master Lane, I believe in, in downtown Las Vegas. So there's the Courtyard. It's not a shelter. That's important to mention. They do have, um, I think, a little over 200 sleeping mats and shaded structure and security guarded bathrooms to make sure that the, the restrooms are safe. So there's the courtyard. The second one they listed um, for homeless people or basically where they would be directing people to go um, when this ordinance is enforced would be the Las Vegas Rescue Mission. And the Las Vegas Res- Rescue Mission, they have about 300 emergency beds, according to what I had checked with them. And um, the ordinance also says any publicly funded shelter in that corridor of hope area. So uh, there is a, a shortage, obvious shortage of beds that are available. And so we're anticipating, you know, law enforcement is going to be expected to direct people to services. But if there aren't enough services, then that's one of the questions that came up on Wednesday. So you bring up a good point about law enforcement. I mean, what is Metro saying about this ordinance? How are, how are they going to enforce it? In October, um, our colleague, Mark Hernandez, he's another intern, had actually contacted Metro and tried to look into what teams or what um, what do they have in place to already address issues if they get a call from someone who's maybe home from a, pro- a problem arising from someone who's maybe homeless. And so um, he spoke with Lieutenant Hatchet um, at Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, who said that they have about eight officers, um, according to when we last spoke with him in October. Two officers on a, I think it's called a multi-agency outreach engagement team. And then they have um, what he said were three teams of two officers each on a homeless outreach team. And that's just metro specific, um, I believe. That it has been a question is just, does law enforcement have the tools they need to enforce this? And so when is all this actually going into effect? So the ordinance itself, I believe the date was November 12th. This month is when it is officially, they can start enacting it. But according to a presentation given by the city, they will not start enforcing it until February. So they'll basically start posting signs in January. And that's when they say that officers will start to notify people in that area who are camping or in violation of ordinance. They'll start notifying them for about give it about a month. And then in February, it'll start to kind of be the full measure, misdemeanor, um, either citations or arrests. So we're running out of time here, but I want to quickly drill into the reasons why the city council did this. And so they they listed a couple, but a big one was public safety. I mean, what what did they say? Why would this ordinance solve what they see as a public safety issue with homeless people in downtown Las Vegas? The public safety issue um, was one of the things they held on to as just being um, the crisis that they're saying they're trying to address with the ordinance. And mostly it was having to do with health, just talking about basically waste and people going to the bathroom in certain areas outside of businesses, camping out outside of homes. Yeah, it was cited again and again that they, they didn't want any disease outbreaks. And so that was a big reason for the ordinance. Um, was public health. And in terms of safety, it was definitely acknowledged that mental illness is something that needs to be addressed. Did not get into too many specifics about how we're going to go about that. And that's um, one of the big things in the home, at least according to um, research, I've seen uh, about 40% of homeless individuals report having a mental illness. And that's something that definitely came up in public comment. So, But to be clear, that wasn't addressed inside this particular ordinance. No, it was not. There were no provisions for providing more mental illness services 
any services that would assist with that as a cause of homelessness. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you for joining us, Shannon. Thank you, Jacob. The 2020 general election is officially less than a year away, but with Nevada among the first states in the nation to vote next year, candidates for the country's top job have been focusing heavily on the Silver State for several months. KUNR's Paul Boger sat down with Fred Locken, a political scientist with Truckee Meadows Community College, about where we are in the election process and what it means for voters in Nevada. And this is just a portion of Paul's full interview, which you can hear on KUNR's website. Fred, you've followed politics in Nevada for uh, several years now. You know, how have you seen presidential campaigns change in recent years? Well, the change has been dramatic. Uh, if we go back to the beginning, I'm in my 29th year in the state of Nevada and came from the Midwest where engagement and visibility was just greater. The states had larger populations, sort of closer to the flow of the traditional political mind. Coming out here, you were literally uh, li- living on the edge. Uh, you would wave at the planes as they flew over to get to California. That, that state mattered. Uh, but we were a low count for uh, electoral college votes. We didn't really have any players in Washington. I mean, they were decent. Reed was building it. So it's remarkable how it changed as Reed gained uh, his role as a leader in, in the early 2000s. And then how he was able to parlay that into the change in the role that the Democratic Party played um, in Nevada for the national nomination. And and that has been transformational. And we're only looking at several elections now where this has gone on. But we didn't see any of the candidates. And now we see them all repeatedly. And and, and we've become this very important early state in the primary caucus season. We We have been this bellwether state in terms of of the battles over the U.S. Senate, uh, and we had Harry Reid in this first minority, then majority, then minority leader role in the United States Senate, all of which just sort of allowed Nevada to flower as some relevant Western voice. And and it, it's been amazing. I, I, I would not have ever forecast that happening, but it, it's been an, an amazing transformation in Nevada. So what do you make of, of the presidential race so far? Or I, I guess I should say the Democratic nomination process so far. Exactly, because it's a, it's a one-horse uh, operation here this time around. The uh, Republicans, the state of one, one of only four that has taken us out of the Republican cycle. Um, I don't know that there's going to be much of a Republican cycle. There are some that are trying to challenge at that point, but Nevada is now completely irrelevant, whatever happens. For us, uh, this is a very crazy year for the, the Democrats with really too many candidates. The National Party failed in not being able to do its role, which should have been to somehow structure and regulate that process. Uh, they've set up, I think, far too many debate events, and uh, this prolonged reality of trying to get them to, wither, to, to uh, uh, willow it down uh, just becomes a fatigue factor. I, I think uh, it, it was a fatigue factor for the Republicans. It, I already see it with the Democrats. We are so far away from decision-making yet. We're so far away from the November 2020 campaign, that I think this is going to create problems for the party, not solve them. We want to live the mythology of democracy, but this has been at best organized chaos so far. But it's played out in Nevada as a result because since we're one of the first four, we are seeing these candidates come in fairly large numbers and in repetitive visits. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a real effort to get the ground game going. You know, Democrats are 
are living the 2020 election right now. There are a lot of texts going out, a lot of phone, ball, uh, phone calls. They're, they're already doing walking to get people organized for uh, commitments to the caucus vote. And uh, I've actually done some of that walking. And I've got to tell you that what's really interesting is to hear what the, the people are saying, what the voters are saying, which is overwhelmingly a disgust for the caucus system. You know, the older the voter, the more they hate the caucus. And why did they ever do that to us? And, and you know, the 2016 caucus for the Democrats was a bit of a disaster here in Nevada. They're promising it's better. They're going to have early caucusing. That's if you, if you want to avoid the bullies on caucus day. But – some damage is being done there, which is sort of counterintuitive at this point where you would assume the Democrats want all of these people on board looking at the most critical election in 2020. But there is a lot of, of frustration and cynicism at some of the processes that they've adopted in, in some of the – and now they're being badgered by phone calls and text messages and door visits. And we're still three months away from the, the caucus and you know, well away from the fall campaign. So it's um, – it's a two-edged sword where you know, Nevada is not being ignored, but I think many Nevadans would kind of hope that some of this would go away. I don't, I don't think they're seeing a benefit from it. They're just seeing a process that has become so negative and so grueling is now that much more grueling. It's that much longer. You know, like you said, we are at least three months away from the caucus. Um but one of the things I think are, is interesting is that Nevada is a notoriously difficult state to poll, to accurately poll, I should say. Um, you know, how do you think that affects the horse race nature of elections here? Well, nobody really knows what's going on as a result. Nevada is challenging, but it's it's also in a way typical. The landlines going away, the way by which you can reach someone that answers a poll because now you have, you know, call screening and all kinds of factors. You're always calling them at the worst time of their day when they're trying to eat a meal. And and so there's an interesting cynicism that has <laughs> kind of built into the process. So I always take any of the data as a grain of salt. I had a, a rather major player in state government tell me a year ago that he's so sick and tired of it when it comes in uh, that he he basically purposely lies about everything about him, his age, his income. He, he goes for the most outrageous kind of a candidate support just to screw with them. If you have somebody who's an insider, a player saying that, says a lot. Uh, and, and and I think for parties then it's very frustrating because uh, you, when they're starting out in this process for the Democrats, so many candidates, which is taking a finite pie of contributions and and making it very thin – um, and so none of them really feel like they have enough money this time around. Uh, how you utilize your resources, uh, what I'm seeing is, is it's just basically textbook. They're just trying to follow the script, which is a series of scripts, and, and hope that that ground game magic is going to work again. Uh, some are trying a little bit more edgier uh, approach, uh, maybe a little bit more new age. But uh, for the most part, I think it's very frustrating for them. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. It, it, and in a, in a caucus, the process here, of who's going to show up? Who's going to participate? So um, uh, I, I think it's very hard. I, and it's kind of funny because it's self-imposed. It's the parties that have put this process in place. They prefer the caucus over the primary. Uh, but there have been bills in, uh, introduced in the state legislature. There was one again this, this last round. I think in 2021 we'll – hopefully see a more serious push to get back at least to a, a, a primary. That just would work easier for the parties. That actually works a lot easier for those who want to come out and participate. And you actually do get better participation. 
In that same vein, the fact that the Republicans aren't having a caucus or aren't having that primary contest here in Nevada this year or next year, does that disenfranchise maybe some Republican voters who aren't satisfied with the president and maybe want to have a different choice? Or is this just he was going to be the candidate anyway and therefore why waste the time and the money? Well, I think the real political motivation was to disenfranchise any effort that would challenge the president's nomination for a second round. It's disingenuous in a party process, and I, and I think there are a number of Republicans that don't agree with the decision of their state, state party on this issue. But the state party has lost a lot of its Republican base. It's living over in the nonpartisan. Anybody who is a moderate is no longer welcome in the state Republican Party, and so it's left the party. Uh, and so it's already disenfranchised because it would prefer to be seen as a Republican. They want to vote a more moderate brand and they're not welcome. Uh, it's, it's hard on those voters. And, and the simple reality is it – in any kind of a situation, the textbook argument is that even within a party, even for an incumbent, it's good to have a challenge because it keeps it out in front of the cameras. It keeps the dialogue going. It keeps the interest maintained. Playing it safe, uh, as uh, apparently is the current strategy of the Republican Party, really can come at a price. Uh, you know, people separated from it, and what do they have to watch? But only the Democratic side. Uh, it is possible for those who are not necessarily happy with the uh, the current incumbent to uh, be attracted to some of the candidates that are running on the Democratic side of of seeing the other side of the coin. And we're seeing it in the national polls where Republican support for the president now, as of this morning, has dropped to 74 percent from 95 percent. And so I think that the the toll of the conversation about impeachment and the way that this campaign is playing out, where the the focus is clearly on the Democrats, where where there is a contest going on uh, in a Republican president that's basically trying to fix it all the way to the the fall election – is very apparent. And I, I think it, it does take some percentage of, of voters on the Republican side and make them say, why am I a Republican? We're going into this these primaries and into this election at the same time that Congress is taking on this impeachment inquiry into the president. Are there concerns? Should there be concerns from the Democrats that this impeachment process may backfire or may hurt the, their elections moving forward? Well, uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi would have told you exactly that, and I think that a lot of pundits look at it and say that she, she had the big picture. She carries the experience into this process. It's it's understandable from a Democratic Party point of view what might be very frustrating about this this sitting president, but this process is now ripe with a lot of problems that could easily backfire on the Democrats. And the the problem with that is it it has implications not only for the presidential race of 2020, but how the Democrats perform in both the House and the Senate races and even in the state races because you have the the census coming up in 2020 and the redrawing of lines in 2021. So this is a – one of those DECA elections coming up that has profound – implications for each party. The Republicans played it very well in 2010 and have been reaping the benefits for the last decade. This would be the opportunity for the Democrats to turn around and, and, and use the same strategy. But if you're distracted with an impeachment process and this thing actually spills into the election year and you, you're already 20 votes short of what you need for conviction in the U.S. Senate, so you need a cataclysmic event 
to be able to switch Republican senators to vote against their sitting president. Uh, it could happen, but the odds on that are very low. And what we can draw from, because this is the only fourth event, but if you look at Bill Clinton's event, that backfired against the Republicans quite quite dramatically in a 1998 election. It was off here instead of main year this time away. But but it literally, you you saw an increase in the popularity of Clinton as a result of the impeachment process. It strengthened his, real, his, his role in that 1998 off-year election, and it, it bode very well for the Democrats. I mean, the, the Republicans paid a price for that. And I think that Pelosi and others, I saw that. But, you know, sometimes you, you always have to lead your party. And if your party starts going in another direction, you're either now irrelevant or you shuffle over and get back in front of it. So their commitment now is to move this quickly. And we're being told... Uh, that uh, she's looking at the uh, probably the vote for impeachment to occur this month, and uh, that would allow uh, everyone's talking about a trial. Then that would occur in December, uh, which at this point in time it's a very difficult piece and the best of times to manage. And I think the Democrats are really struggling with with getting this to where they want it to, and, and uh, the Republicans are, uh, are remaining very solid in their process and. It's hard to know. Nobody's really asking how the voters are reacting to this. This is all going to have consequences, I think, for both parties come November 2020. But it's really hard at this point to know what they're going to be. Fred Lockin is a professor of political science at Truckee Meadows Community College. Fred, thanks so much. Thank you, Paul. All right, and we are at the, the last segment of the podcast, and I have Jacob joining me, uh, and you were on just the podcast just a couple of moments ago. Oh, that I was. About 10 minutes ago, maybe. <laughs> oh, okay, 10 minutes, five minutes. Yes. But uh, we have a name for the book segment of our podcast called Indie Reads, and we have no name for this movie segment. I, I feel like Indie Watches or something. I don't know. I haven't indie had this. Indie Watch. Indie, indie Watch. I haven't had yeah. any of this approved by the editors yet. So, uh. But anyway, you and I have recently seen several uh, indie darlings. I mean, you, you've, you saw Jojo Rabbit recently. Yes, I did. And I saw both The Lighthouse and Parasite. So neither of us have seen the movies that each other are going to be talking about. So we're going to keep this a spoiler-free segment for you guys that like movies. But all of these movies were kind of indie darlings at Sundance and the Cannes Film Festival and uh, TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. So let's let's start with you, Jacob. What did you think of Jojo Rabbit? Right. So I I watched uh, Jojo Rabbit, but uh, satire by Taika Waititi about Nazi Germany, and it follows uh, young Johannes, uh, whose nickname is Jojo Rabbit, mm-hmm. naturally, as he sort of goes through the waning days of World War II. At the same time that his mother is sheltering a Jewish girl in their attic, and that's not a spoiler. That's in the trailers. So the movie. If you like Taika Waititi, great movie. Honestly, like it's funny. He has this very like quirky, if you know Flight of the Concords, it's it's got that kind of um, very quick humor. I mean, he's a frequent collaborator with Flight of the Concords too. So if that should tell you anything about the movie. Mm-hmm. He also directed Thor 3, Thor Ragnarok. So if you like that movie, you'll probably like this. It's kind of sappy in a sort of like early Wes Anderson kind of way. So if that's your jam, you might also like it. But, but. I don't think it's a very good satire. Oh, hot it. takes. It's got good reviews, but Jacob's over here with his hot takes. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm saying it's a bad satire. Okay. So I think, it, and this is tough, because obviously when you're dealing with Nazi Germany, like it's going to be 
it will engender feelings immediately, right? You don't have to watch the movie in order to have a feeling about a satire about Nazi Germany. And so, and, and this is a story tradition at this point, right? Look at the producers and, and springtime for Hitler and, and that lampoon. And, and we can draw direct comparisons to the way that directors and specifically Jewish directors think about the way that they satirize uh, what is sort of, you know, the darkest chapter. Uh, it does an okay job. But I'm left thinking of last year's movie, Death of Stalin. You saw this one, right, Joey? I have seen Death of Stalin. It's very good. Yes. It was much more dramatic than I was expecting. I, wasn't ex- it, I was expecting much more comedy, but it wasn't. I was also expecting it to be funnier. So that movie was directed by a man named Armando Iannucci, who is famous for doing Veep. He did uh, The Thick of It, which is just British Veep. Um, and <laughs> I mean, I'm not lying. It is. And so that movie, I think, does a very, very good job of drilling into you the viewer how bad things were in in soviet russia yeah circa the death of stalin and at no point like obviously like everyone is a buffoon but they are also like cold and cunning and like both things these things can be true and like the jokes are funny but it's much more mean-spirited and and so the jokes don't feel like an excuse to to laugh in the wrong way i'll say and not to say that jojo rabbit is like (laughs) like sympathizes with nazis it doesn't it's very very clear that nazis are the bad guys but i don't think it goes about its own version of satire in a way that is as punchy or as engaging or ultimately as like intellectually satisfying as death of stalin was and that's Mm -hmm. hot takeover that's good movie funny but not a not a great satire a fine satire what would you give it out of five jacob five 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 thumbs up (laughs) it's tough i want to say four because i really enjoyed it it's it's fun it's emotionally affecting um it's funny and it's well acted and it's and it's well produced Did you find most of the jokes landed i did because that that can be a problem you know if the jokes don't land then the movie is (laughs) takes a weird turn it's true and i'll say this that the acting is great scarlett johansson was a little much sometimes like sometimes she was fun and quirky and then sometimes she was like it was a little it was a little over the top Mm -hmm. but overall i'd say probably a four out of five like i still think it was really good i'm just talking from like five thousand feet up if we're gonna like examine satire satire right and we have many comparison points this isn't the greatest nazi satire in the world nor even the greatest satire of the last couple years all right well i hope you haven't offended anyone with your opinion but uh so i'm gonna go on to uh the two movies that i saw and I, i don't think i'm going to be causing any rifts in the in the in the ether with my opinions but so i saw uh, the lighthouse which was directed by roger eggers or Egg- eggers eggers i think there's two e- g's and one e so i'm gonna yes. say eggers eggers he directed the witch which i have not seen the, uh, the I, you the, mean the vivich the vivich yes the yeah. witch with the v's <laughs> i have not seen the witch because i don't like horror movies <laughs> and that movie looked real spooky but i did see the lighthouse it's great it's if you've seen the trailers you kind of know what you're getting you're getting yourself into it is basically what I expected, and it, it was good. It was really good. Like, I really, I never, there was never a moment in the movie that I didn't enjoy. It, if you like David Lynch, you're, you're probably gonna like this movie. It's, it's, it's like a tamed down David Lynch movie. It's not as weird as Mulholland Drive. Uh, it's a little weirder than Twin Peaks, but, but it, it has those elements. The black and white, I think, worked really well in the movie. I also think that the three by two format worked really well. It was a little bit, um, jarring at first to watch a movie that's almost square. 
you're basically watching a square movie and you're mm-hmm. we're just so used to those widescreen movies now yes. well we should put this put this puppy in reverse joey what is the lighthouse about for those yes. who so do not I, know? yes i should have i should have started with that the lighthouse is about two lighthouse attendants played by robert pattinson and willem dafoe and basically they are put on an island to look after a lighthouse for four weeks that is their stint that is the time of theirs meant to be spent there Basically, it's about the iso- being isolated on this island. I mean, it's just the two of them and a bunch of seagulls. And, and one uh, lighthouse. Two men, w- one lighthouse. The movie starts off quiet and slow, but it ramps up exponentially. Where it starts it starts to ramp up, and then it ramps up some more, and then you get to the end, and you're just like, oh, it's, it's going places, and it goes places. But it, it's, a, it's a weird movie. It's a fun movie. It's really fun. There's lots of drinking and sea shanty singing and stuff like that. So um, I, I would give it five out of five. I mean, it's a great movie. I, I, I've, there was never a moment in the movie that I didn't enjoy. There were very strange moments. There were moments I didn't understand. All right. Well, and now Parasite. Uh, directed by Bong Joon-ho, who directed movies like Snowpiercer, Snowpiercer, yep. Snowpiercer yeah, uh, Okja. Um, if you've seen Okja, Okja is weirder than this movie. So if that okay. gives you any Good indication. Um, what I found interesting about this movie, well, I'll explain the plot very quickly. It's about a very poor family um, and they are basically conning their way into working for a very wealthy family. And the whole movie is about this kind of disparity between the wealthy and the poor. The trailers make it out to be a horror movie. It's a comedy. It's very funny. It definitely takes some dark turns. What I th- thought was really interesting about this movie, when you watch foreign films, this, this movie is, is Korean and it's subtitled. Snowpiercer is a, a Korean director, but it's, it's not subtitled. It has mostly white actors. Um, but you can kind of tell it's a Korean movie. It has different um, elements that you don't see in, in, in American movies very often. And, and you see this with other cultures, too. I mean, Australian movies, just they feel very different. There's a, there's a much different kind of way that they go about storytelling and the way that things happen in movies um, in different cultures. And what, what I thought was interesting about this one was it felt like it was made for an American audience, even though it's a Korean movie subtitled uh, released in Korea. It did feel like it was made for an American audience. There were a few moments that were like, oh, this is something you probably wouldn't see in an American movie. But for the most part, it felt more like an American movie than, say, Snowpiercer, which was meant for Americans, but felt different. It didn't feel like most movies you would see in America. And I, I really I would agree that, that Snowpiercer had a weird tone. Yeah, it had a tone that you're not used to seeing here in the States. And so I, I thought that was really interesting. And I, I would I would recommend going to see it not only because of that, but I think it does it does challenge our our perception of classism Um it, it's not like cut and dry like most movies. It's not like the poor people are like the good guys, like the Robin Hoods and the, and the rich people are these evil rich people. There's a lot of gray area in the movie, and that's what I liked about it a lot. Mm, I see. Well, how many thumbs, Joey? How many thumbs for Parasite? I would give Parasite five as well. Parasite has stuck with me more than The Lighthouse. I the I saw it three days ago, and I'm still thinking about it. So, yeah. Oh, it latched on like a parasite, huh? It did latch on like a parasite, yes. Oh. Well, <laughs> I, I'm going to get to the theater and watch both of these, I'm sure. But, yes. yeah. All right. Well, this has been uh, tentatively indie watches or indie watch. Indie, I like indie watch because it's it sounds like. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not going to compare it directly to Baywatch, but yeah. All right, Jacob. Well, you have a great rest of your day. Thank you for being on the podcast twice in one episode. Thank you for having me twice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank Jacob and Shannon for being on today, as well as KUNR and their reporter Paul Boger for his interesting talk with Fred Locken. 
If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you can be the first to hear our new episodes, especially because we have more 2020 presidential candidates who will be on soon. If you have comments, criticism, praise, or hate my taste in movies, you can let me know by emailing me at joey at thenvindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at thenvindie.com. Our original theme song is from Reno band People With Bodies, and you can hear more of their music on Bandcamp or Spotify. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.